We continue our sermon series in Exodus, chapter 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be printed on the screen behind me and also available in your app as a sermon listening guide. You follow along with an outline and the scriptures printed there as well. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now all the congregation of Israel, and on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each, what each can eat, you shall make your count of the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, and your old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it broth or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its leg and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's passion. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned to me on the house of where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. And no plague will fall to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for your memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation, as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats with leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. In the first month, the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. I remember in my 20s, I was navigating the dating world, and inevitably, in the dating world, there would come a point where uh, the question would begin to be asked. And the question was this. At some point, have you had the DTR? Have you had the DTR? Now, for some of you don't know what DTR means, define the relationship. Right? Have you had that define the relationship part? And I hated that question. I had heard that question. 
Because, number one, it was oftentimes premature. And the answer was, no, not yet. Or, or the other part, it just seems overly scripted. But as I look back, it's actually a good question. Have you had the defining the relationship talk? Because what it, what it does is brings clarity to all parties involved. Are we just friends? Are we boyfriend girlfriend? Is this headed toward marriage? Is this exclusive? How am I supposed to relate to you? And the reason why it's important is because if two people are on different pages and have different DCRs in their mind. If one thinks this is serious and heads towards marriage, and the other thinks, yeah, this is just kind of casual, get to know each other, that's going to set up for somebody getting hurt. Right? So the, the define the relationship talk actually works to prevent unnecessary hurt, unnecessary pain. We're going to have a DPR on your relationship with Tim this morning. A define the relationship. Between you and your sin. And this is critical because if you don't get the relationship with your sin right, it's going to lead to bitterness, confusion, lack of assurance, hurt, pain. What is the relationship with your sin? What is your relationship with your sin? First, you don't possess your sin. You say, what's that mean? And how do we know this to be true? Well, there are three incredibly important details in verses 3 to 6 of Exodus chapter 12 that give you the evidence that you don't possess your sin. First, look at verse 5. Your land shall be without blemish a male a year old. Right? These were the, the instructions the Lord was giving his people for Passover, and they were to get a lamb. It was perfect, without blemish. They would get it on the 10th day of the month. They would have it for the 14th day of the month. So they had four days while it was in their house to continue to inspect it to make sure that it was perfect. Now, why is this significant? What's it mean? Well, the land of Passover was ultimately pointing to a greater land to come, and that is Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 5 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In the same way that that lamb was inspected for those four days before it would be sacrificed, so Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was inspected for hours before his crucifixion, days before his crucifixion. All the trials that you read in the gospel, that was going on. The lamb was being inspected to see if it was without blemish. And by the time that Jesus gets through his last trial before Pilate, here's what Pilate says in John 19, 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The lamb was perfect. The lamb was without blemish. And you say, how, how is that evidence that you don't possess your sin? Well, that conversion... When you place your trust in Christ, two things happen. One is Jesus takes your sin from you, and he gives you his perfect righteousness. If Jesus was not perfect, he has no perfect righteousness to give you in that exchange. 
and you still have a, a blemished, imperfect record that is sin. But Jesus was which means you don't possess your sin. He took it from you. You possess his perfect righteousness. That's what belongs to you by faith. Now, step, second detail. Evidence that you don't possess your sin. Look at the end of verse 3. In verse 4. A lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for a lamb, and he that there's neighbor shall take, according to the number of persons, According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the land. That is incredible detail. Incredible detail to make sure that the amount of land matches as precisely as possible the people who would be eating the land. The point is that there would be no leftovers. And if there still happen to be some leftovers, we read in verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. The sole purpose of the land was to provide Passover cover for the people it was designed for. And so the amount of land was to match the people who had need of it and who would eat. No lesson. We say, how is that evidence that you don't possess your sin. Well, when Jesus, the Passover lamb, died on the cross, not a drop of his blood was wasted. What I mean by that is when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't provide a buffet of salvation where some would be in the rest of waiting. He didn't provide this general salvation for general people who would come and take it. No. When Jesus died on the cross, every ounce of his blood was precisely assigned to your sin, past, present, and future. Which means that when he died on the cross, he accomplished your salvation. He didn't just make it possible via buffet. He actually accomplished it so that when you trust Christ, what you receive is a finished, accomplished salvation where every drop of Jesus' blood precisely covers your sin, past, present, and future. You don't possess your sin. You know, if you understand salvation to be this general buffet that you take from, then it's a big question. Did I grab enough of it? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I repent well enough? Did I, do, did I do everything needed to pull off this buffet table what I need for salvation? Versus when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished your salvation. He had your name in mind when he hung on the cross. And none of his blood was wasted. Every drop accounted for your sin. So you can be 100% assured that he took your sin. Specifically and particularly your sin. Third detail in verses 3 to 6. That serve as evidence that you don't possess your sin. Look at verse 6. You shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This lamb was kept in the home for four days, from the 10th to the 14th day. Mom, dad, kids, fed this lamb. They played with it. 
They got to know it. They identified with it. It became part of them. And on that 14th day, the father or the head of the household would pick that lamb up in his arms, pull the head back, and put the bread. And the blood was spread out all over the white wool of the lamb. And it was graphic, but the picture was crystal clear. That the sins of this family have been placed on this land. They've been transferred from this family to this land, and the wages of sin is death. Now, here's what's even more powerful. When Passover was being celebrated, and the fathers at twilight gathered the family around, and pulled that lamb up in his arms and sacrificed that lamb. At that same time, at twilight, the high priest in the temple had the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and would sacrifice it for atonement for the sins of Israel. Do you realize who was being sacrificed at that exact time? It was Jesus Christ. He was sacrificed and crucified at twilight because he was the Passover lamb. Who is taking the sins of the people? You don't possess your sin. Jesus took it from you. It doesn't belong to you. And you say, wait a minute, but I sin every day. Multiple times a day. Exactly. And that's where confession and repentance is the acknowledgement that your sin doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. He took it from you, and what you possess is Christ's righteousness. That's what confession and repentance is. Throughout the day, it's a confession and an acknowledgement and a proclamation. My sin does not belong to me. Jesus took it, and I possess the righteousness of Christ. So, what is your relationship to your sin? First, you don't possess it. Second, before I get there, you don't possess your sin. This summer, uh, we took a trip, my family took a trip to Little Talbot Island, which is just north of Jackson, Nova Coast. We took our pop up camper up there, we set up our pop up camper, we spent a couple days there on the beach. And one of the days, uh, we decided we were going to spend the entire day on the beach. So we brought our 10 foot by 10 foot canopy tent because dad has skin cancer issues and those kids are going to sit out in the sun all day. So we get on the beach, we set up the canopy, we set up our beach chairs, enjoy the day. In Florida, what happens in the afternoon? Big thunderstorm comes. Well, we weren't done with the beach. So we said, you know what, we're just going to go ride out the storm. We'll come back later. We're on vacation. We can be at the beach all day long. Storm comes, storm goes. A couple hours later, we come back to the beach, probably five or six at night. We're walking down the boardwalk. Kids run ahead. Kids, we get on the beach, they disappear down the steps. And then we see our daughter come back up the steps, running at us. We go, oh, something happened. She said, Mommy, Daddy, somebody's taking our tent. We go, what? Somebody's taking our tent. So we keep walking. Well, this man walks up the boardwalk, thinking he had she did, she embarrassed, and, and, and tried to explain to us why that tent actually did belong to him. And he gave some sort of excuse, but he, he left. So we walked down, and sure enough, there's our tent, packed up, the zipper's halfway up, and the, the, the chairs were folded up against the boardwalk. 
And so I went, I went to my son, and we said, what did you say to this man when you confronted him on the beach stealing our penny? And uh, he said, I just walked up to him, and I said, Penny, that's our penny. And he walked away. In other words, that penny doesn't belong to you. So get your hands off. Listen, if you're in Christ, your sin doesn't belong to you. Quit holding on to it. You say, what's the evidence I'm holding on to? Shame and guilt. Shame and guilt is the evidence that you're holding on to your sin. Confess it. Turn from it. Receive forgiveness. Jesus is the one who took your sin, and through confession and repentance, you are reminded that you possess the righteousness of Christ. That's what you hold on to. So what's your relationship to your sin? First, you don't possess your sin. Second, you don't bear the punishment for your sin. Look at verse 7. Then, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So they were to sacrifice this lamb, they were to take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and we read in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now the Israelites, must have been shocked to hear that their lives were in danger. Because in the first nine plays, they were left unscathed. God put separation between his people and Pharaoh's people. And yet we get to the tenth play, and now suddenly Israel's lives are in danger. Why? When well, we read back in Exodus chapter 5, that it wasn't just Egypt that didn't listen to the word of God. It was Israel who didn't listen to the word of God. They were both guilty. They both deserved judgment. And so what happened on Passover is that death, the wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. Death visited every last house, whether it was full of Egyptians or whether it was full of Israelites. Either the firstborn son died or a lamb died. But something died. You say, well, what determined whether it was a firstborn son or whether it was a lamb? It wasn't their ethnicity. It wasn't that they were either Egyptian or they were Israel. It was the blood. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. If an Israelite had been out in the street, as God's Spirit moved forward in judgment, that Israel, Israelite would have died. It was something inside them, their sin, that brought on God's just wrath. It was something outside of them that turned God's wrath aside. Something inside of them that brought on God's wrath, something outside of them that turned God's wrath aside. And so when Israel was rescued out of Egypt, 
They could say, God saved us because we are better. God saved us because we are better. No, God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. And if you've lived life for long enough, you've been burdened by favorites. You know what favorites it feels like, you can see it. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. The reason that you don't bear the punishment for your sin is not because of something in you or something that you do. It's because of something outside of you. The blood of another that was shed, Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you don't avoid punishment or purify God's wrath because you feel like you're part of a superior race. Uh, you you don't turn aside God's wrath or God's anger because you feel like you have the right political view or you're a part of the right political party. God's wrath is not turned aside because you have superior knowledge of the scriptures or you have the correct theology. God's wrath is not turned aside because you feel like you're part of a superior gender. God's wrath is turned aside because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything inside of you. And what that produces is a profound humility. A profound humility. And not only that, it keeps you from believing that God is dropping a hammer on you or punishing you when you get into a season or a cycle of sin. And everyone has experienced that. When you get in the middle of sin and a season of it, and things start to go wrong, it is very easy to functionally believe that God is somehow dropping a hammer on you or punishing you. What we learn from the pastor pointing forward to Christ is that Jesus Christ bore punishment for you. There is no punishment left for you. It was all exhausted on Jesus Christ so that what is left for you what is left for you is grace, love, and yes, fatherly discipline. But discipline and punishment are two completely different things. Discipline and punishment are two completely different things. Punishment says God takes pleasure in hurting me. Discipline says God takes pleasure in transforming me and shaping me into imagery. And you can be assured because of the work of Christ to take all punishment on himself. That what's left for you is gracious, transforming, shaping discipline from your heavenly Father. What's your relationship to your sin? You don't possess your sin. You don't bear the punishment for your sin. And finally, you battle the root. You battle the root of your sin. Verses 14 to 20 explain this week long celebration that we call the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began with the Passover. This Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's some strong language in here. Verses 15 and, and verses 19 say this they say, What God's people were warned that if anyone eats what is leavened, that person should be cut off from the community of Israel. That's a serious which means that the unleavened bread was very significant 
Why? What was the significance of the unleavened bread? Well, number one, leaven is what causes bread to rise. They didn't have time to let the bread rise. They had to get out of Egypt. Verse 11 says that. This is how you shall eat it. Felt fasted, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. They had to leave quickly. But it goes deeper than that. The way leaven worked was you would, you would have a dough of bread that had leaven in it. And you would take a little piece of that off before you baked it and save it. And then you bake that bread. The next day, you take that leaven and put it in the next batch of dough so that that leaven would cause that bread to rise. And before you bake it, you keep a little bit of unbaked dough out. And then you bring it to the next day and put it in the next batch of dough so the bread would continue to rise. The reason God told Israel to have no leaven in their bread is that he was telling them to not bring the Egyptian God into their new life moving forward in freedom. And we know this because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8. Paul says it this way. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new one, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They were a new people with a new identity. They were called out of Egypt and did not bring the gods of Egypt with them. I said last week, God was not just getting Israel out of Egypt, but he was getting Egypt out of Israel. And this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth means this. Sincerity, that word, means pure motive, which is the opposite of ulterior motive, which is the opposite of manipulation. Religion in Egypt with the Egyptian gods was all about manipulation. The Egyptians tried to manipulate the gods to give them what they wanted. And Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. They fell in love with the Egyptian gods. They fell in love with the Egyptian way of life. Yes, they still worshiped Yahweh and they had the Father, but, but they were in a culture of manipulation. And that manipulation wasn't just with the gods, which were for Israel, turned into them learning how to try to manipulate Yahweh, which they had happened. But it also went horizontal and manipulated one another. So they came out of a culture of manipulation. And when God said, I don't want you to put leaven in your bread, it was God saying, You are leaving a life of manipulation and entering a life of submission. When you think about conversion, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the primary change that happens is not behavior. It's motivation. The conversion is leaving a life of manipulation, trying to manipulate God to do what you want, trying to manipulate others to do what you want, to a life of sincerity and transparency of serving others. It's the difference between playing God, pre-Christ, and submitting to God, 
But manipulation can be hard to detect. Prior to trusting Christ, a husband can threaten to leave his wife to do what he wants. After trusting Christ, that same husband can buy his wife flowers to get what he wants. One behavior, threatening to leave, is frown upon. The other behavior, buying flowers, is smile upon. And yet both of those behaviors are full of the leaven, leaven of malice and evil. Conversion and transformation happens at the motivational level. Motivational level. When you manipulate, you play God. When you're sincere and transparent, you submit to God. When you're living religiously, which is another way to say when you're living in a, in a season of manipulation or a culture of manipulation, you focus on the behavior you're saying. When you're living in the, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you focus on the manipulation or the, the motivation of your sin. And you see the manipulation. What's your relationship to your sin? You don't possess it. You don't bear the punishment for it. You battle the root of your sin. With your primary sin struggle is playing God versus submitting to God. That's your primary sin struggle after you've come to know Christ. To know Christ. Playing God versus submitting God. Manipulation versus sincerity of The Passover was so significant in the life of Israel that number one, in verse two, we read that, that the calendar of Israel was reordered at the death of the Passover land. That was the beginning. Verse two, the first of the month, the first of the month, it's a repetition to say new life, new identity, new calendar that starts with the death of the Passover land. And not only that, we see in verse 14 that God institutes this annual celebration feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. It was to have his people remember what had happened. Like this day shall be for you a memorial day, a day of remembrance, and you shall keep it throughout your generations as a statue forever. God prescribed that this Passover feast was to be celebrated and remembered forever. Why aren't we celebrating it today? Well, Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, when he was having the last Passover with his disciples, he transformed the Passover meal into what we know as the Lord's Supper. Listen to how it's described in Luke 22. Jesus took bread. See, that's the Passover meal. As all the, the, the rest were celebrating Passover, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's no longer sacrifice a lamb in remembrance of me because I'm going to shed my blood, my blood once and for all. Do this in remembrance of me now. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten things, this cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We still celebrate the Passover. It's just been fulfilled in Christ. And now it's called the Lord's Christ. How great is God to give us a tangible reminder? To give you a tangible reminder that you don't possess your sins, that you possess the righteousness of Christ. How great is God to give you a tangible reminder that you don't bear the punishment for your sins. Jesus bore all the punishment for you. And have something you can face and touch to be reminded of that. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. To see the whole story of the Bible come together and fulfilled in, in your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we don't possess our sins, but by faith possess the righteousness of your Son. Thank you that we don't bear the punishment for our sins, but that your Son Jesus bore it for us. And thank you for this meal, the Lord's Son, that you give us to celebrate and remember and to be transformed. Father, it's been months and months and months since we have celebrated the Lord's Supper here in and we pray now that you would do a mighty work in our midst. Through these extraordinary elements, but by your Spirit, would you do an amazing and powerful work of transforming our hearts and reminding us of all that we have in your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.